<clears throat> All right. Um, this is a different Elliot, not the last night's Elliot. That Elliot stopped reading, had supper, and was no shape to read you part five, stave three of a Christmas carol. So this is a different Elliot who is hap happed up. Well, I guess hopped up on caffeine. I'm I am certainly jazzed. I've just had a pot of caffeine. So uh this is gonna be a better, maybe quicker read. How's that sound? Alright, I still can't read it. Jesus. Why did he have to write in such small letters? Alright, oh right, here we go. Comfortable? Okay. Here's stave three of a Christmas carol titled The Second of the Three Spirits. This is my deep voice. Hello. Awaking in the middle of a ah, prodigiously I have to read that. Prodigiously tough snore and sitting up in bed to get his thoughts together. Scrooge had no occasion to be told that the bell was again upon the stroke of one. He felt that he was restored to consciousness in the right nick of time for the especial, especial, I don't know, I don't know how it went to Spanish, but it did. Especial purpose of holiday holding. Jesus. Okay, hold on. I can't do this. I gotta get into my uncomfortable position. Okay. <clears throat> Where's my light? I need my lamp. Servant, get my lamp. Right away. Here you are, sir. There's your lamp for reading. My lamp. My lamp. Alright, sorry. Sorry. Alright, okay. <clears throat> Where am I? Let's see. That was only one paragraph? Good lord. Alright, hold on. Bell was again the stroke of one. He felt that he was restored to consciousness in the right nick of time for the especial purpose of holding a conference with the second messenger dispatched to him through Jacob Marley's intervention. But, finding that he turned uncomfortably, uncomfortably, cold when he began to wonder which of his curtains this new specter would draw back he put them he put them every one aside with his own hands and lying down again established a sharp lookout all round the bed for he wished to challenge the spirit on the moment of its appearance and did not wish to be taken by surprise and made nervous Gentlemen of the free and easy sort who plume themselves on being acquainted with a motive or two and being usually equal to the time of day express the wide range of their capacity for adventure by observing, observe, see, I'm still doing observing, observing that they are good for anything from pitch and toss to manslaughter. <laughs> Sorry. He wished to challenge the spirit <clears throat> the moment of his appearance. I did not wait. Oh, wait, where am I? Oh, okay. Man's laughter. That they're good for anything from... Hold on a second. <coughs> Man. Ooh. Pitch and toss to manslaughter. Between which opposite extremes, no doubt, there lies a tolerably wide and comprehensive range of subjects without venturing for Scrooge quite as harsh, heartily, heartily as this. I don't mind calling on you to believe that he was ready for a good, broad, broad field of strange appearances and that nothing between a baby and a rhinoceros would have astonished him very much. Now, being prepared, 
for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing. See, that sentence, if I was editing this, I'm not a good editor, but I would just say, don't, don't write that. But then again, I would understand if I was paying him by the word, right? Now, being prepared <clears throat> for almost anything, he was not by any means prepared for nothing, and consequently, consequently, when the bell struck one and no shape appeared, he was taken with a violent fit of trembling. Five minutes, ten minutes, a quarter of an hour went by, yet nothing came. All this time, <clears throat> he lay upon his bed, the very core and center of a blaze of ruddy light, which streamed upon it when the clock proclaimed the hour, and which, being only light, was more alarming than a dozen ghosts, as he was powerless to make out what it meant or would be at, <clears throat> and was sometimes apprehensive that he might be, at the very moment, an interesting case of spontaneous combustion. I didn't know they were still talking about spontaneous human combustion back then. <clears throat> I thought spontaneous human combustion was only like... <clears throat> oh my God, hold on a second. I'm going to have to pause and clear my throat. Ooh, sorry. All right, I'm back. Spontaneous combustion was like from the 1950s to the 1980s. Um, if you didn't know, spontaneous human combustion, they found out that um, people did not spontaneously humanly combust. It was due to like a candle or, uh, or a cigarette or a cigar. Um, and it turned out that the fire was just burning out the fat of the person and... It seems spontaneous because then after it burned out, did not affect the bed or anything around it because just burning the fat of the person. And so it was just dust and feet or something by the end. Look it up. Interesting. It's interesting. All right. Where was I? Spontaneous combustion. That's where I was. And where would that be? My God, I wish I could read. Here we go. Here we go. Spontaneous combustion, without having the consolation of knowing it. At last, however, he began to think, as you or I would have thought at first, for it is always the person not in the predicament who knows what ought to have been done in it, and would unquestionably have done it too. At last, I say, he began to think that the source and secret of this ghostly light might be in the adjoining room, from whence, on further tracing, it seemed to shine. This idea taking full possession of his mind, he got up softly and shuffled in his slippers to the door. The moment Scrooge's hand was on the lock, a strange voice called him by his name and bade him enter. He obeyed. It was his own room. There was no doubt about that, but it had undergone a surprising transformation. The walls and ceiling were so hung with living green that it looked a perfect grove, from every part of which bright gleaming berries glistened, the crisp leaves of holly, mistletoe, and ivy reflected back the light as if so many little mirrors had been scattered there, <clears throat> and such a mighty blaze went roaring up the chimney as that dull petrification of a hearth had never known in Scrooge's time or Marley's or for many and many a winter season gone, heaped up on the floor to form a kind of throne were turkeys, geese, game, poultry, brawn, great joints of meat, suckling pigs, 
Long wreaths of sausages, minced pies, plum puddings, barrel of barrels of oysters, red hot chestnuts, cherry cheeked apples, juicy oranges, luscious pears, immense twelfth cakes, and seething bowls of punch that made the chamber dim with their delicious steam. <clears throat> In easy state upon this couch, there so there sat a jolly giant, glorious to see who bore a glowing torch in shape not unlike Plenty's horn. I don't know who Plenty is, but he had a horn, and held it up high up to shed its light on Scrooge as he came peeping around the door. <clears throat> Come in, exclaimed the ghost. Come in. You know me better, man. Scrooge entered timidly and hung his head before the spirit. He was not the dogged Scrooge he had been, and though the spirit's eyes were clear and kind, he did not like to meet them. I am the ghost of Christmas present, said the spirit. Look upon me. Scrooge reverently did so. It was clothed in one simple green robe or mantle, <clears throat> bordered with white fur. This garment hung so loosely on the figure that its capacious breasts was bare, as if disdaining to be warded or concealed by any artifice, its feet observable, oh my god, why can't I say observable, beneath the ample folds of the garment, were <clears throat> also bare on its head, wore no other covering, oh, my lamp fell over, my lamp fell over, no other covering than a holly wreath set here and there with shining icicles, its dark brown curls were long and free, free as its genial face, its sparkling eye, its open hand, its cheery voice, its unconstrained demeanor, and its joyful air. Greeted around its middle was an antique scabbard, but no sword was in it. The ancient sheath, the ancient sheath, sheath, wow, that was like, I was struggling, was eaten up with rust. You have never seen the like of me before, exclaimed the spirit. Never, Scrooge made to answer it. <coughs> <clears throat> Man, have never walked forth with the younger members of my family, meaning, in parentheses, for I am very young, my elder brothers born in these later years pursued the phantom. I do not think I have, said Scrooge. I am afraid I have not. Have you had many brothers, spirit? More than eighteen hundred, said the ghost. A tremendous family to provide for, muttered Scrooge. He muttered it, but there's an exclamation point. Can you mutter an exclamation point? Let me try that. A tremendous family to provide for, muttered Scrooge. I don't, I can't mutter, I guess. The ghost of Christmas present rose. Spirit, said Scrooge submissively, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compulsion, and I learned the lesson which is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Touch my robe. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> oh, God. Elliot, grow up. Touch my robe. Scrooge did as he was told and held it fast. Holly, mistletoe, red berries, ivory, ivy, 
turkeys, geese. Are we doing this again? Geese, game, poultry, brawn, meat, pigs, sausages, oysters, pies, puddings, fruits, and punch all vanished instantly. So did the room, the fire, the ruddy glow, the hour of night, and they stood in the city streets on Christmas morning where, for the weather was severe, in parentheses, the people made a rough but brisk and not unpleasant kind of music in scraping the snow from the pavement in front of their dwellings and from the tops of their houses whence it was a mad delight to the boys to see it come. I'm not, I'm not even paying attention to this. See it come plump, plumping down on the road below and splitting into artificial <coughs> little snowstorms. The house fronts <coughs> looked, I can't stop this, what's going on in my throat right now. The house fronts looked black enough and the windows blacker, contrasting, contrast, <laughs> con- contrasting with the smooth white sheet of snow upon the roofs and with the dirtier snow upon the ground, which last deposit had been plowed up in deep furrows by the heavy wheels of carts and wagons furrows that crossed and recrossed each other hundreds of times where the great streets branched it off and made intricate channels hard to trace in the thick yellow mud and icy water. The sky was gloomy, and the shortest streets were choked up with a dingy mist, half thawed, half frozen, whose heavier particles descended in a shower of sooty atoms, as if all the chimneys in Great Britain had, by one consent, caught fire and were blazing away in their dear heart's content. There was nothing very cheerful in the climate of, or the, the town. I don't know what's going on, but I, I hope he got paid handsomely for this paragraph, and yet was there an air of cheerfulness abroad that the clearest summer air and brightest summer sun might have endeavored to diffuse in vain for the people who were shoveling away this is another one so if you want to (laughs) just for the people who were shoveling away on the housetops were jovial and full of glee calling out to one another from the parapets and now and then exchanging a facetious 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 snowball better natured missile far than many a wordy jest laughing heartedly as if i'm not i wish i could read this with uh inflection but i can't i just can't it went right and not less heartily if it went wrong the poulterer's shops were still half open and the fruiterers were radiant with glory there were great round pot-bellied baskets of chestnuts shaped like the waistcoats of jolly old gentlemen lolling at the doors and tumbling out into the street in their apoplectic opulence apoplectic opulence that's a good uh if you want to warm up exercise make sure go apoplectic opulence that will help you uh enunciate better there were ruddy brown-faced broad-girthed spanish onions it's like I get the picture, dude. You just you just listed paragraphs worth of food and now you just gotta put Spanish onions in there. Just okay. Okay. We're all inclusive. It's <laughs> nothing wrong with Spanish onions. I'm just saying I could have done without another food. Okay? Alright. Shining in the fatness. Shining in the fatness. That's a no diggity. Uh, Made me think of, by the way. 
of their growth like Spanish friars and winking from their shelves in wanton slyness at the girls as they went by and glanced demurely at the hung-up mistletoe. There were pears and apples clustered high in blooming pyramids. There were bunches of grapes made in the shopkeeper's benevolence to dangle from the conspicuous hooks that people's mouths might water gratis as they passed there were piles of filberts so what's he's he's this is a this is like a the main drag as you say of a small town and everyone's got their food out and it's like you're walking through the shops and you see food and apparently there's dudes leering at chicks which it's fine it's fine this is the 1800s uh, the male gaze is still a thing, and the male gaze will always be a thing. Uh, but pretty much, to shorten this up, yeah, it was a very festive little market town. All right, okay. Filberts, mossy and brown, recalling in their fragrance ancient walks among the woods and pleasant shuffling ankle-deep through the withered leaves. There were Norfolk biffins. I don't, I don't know. Squab and swarthy setting off the yellow of the oranges and lemons and in the great compactness of their juicy persons urgently entreating and beseeching to be carried home in paper bags and eaten after dinner the very gold and silver fish set forth among these joy's fruits in a bowl through members of a dull and stagnant bloodied Blooded race appeared to know that there was something going on to a fish went gasping around and round in their little world in slow, passionless excitement. Wait, oh my god. Okay, hold on. I'm try just fast forward. Oh, okay, I got ten more pages of stave <laughs> stave three. The grocers oh the grocers nearly closed with perhaps two shutters down or one. Why not? Two shutters down or one. But through those gaps, such glimpses, it was not alone that the scales descending on the counter made a merry sound, or that the twine and roller parted company so briskly that the canisters, canisters were rattled up and down like juggling tricks, or even that the blended scents of tea and coffee were so grateful, coffee, were so grateful to the nose, or even that the raisins were so plentiful and rare, the almonds so extremely white, the sticks of cinnamon so long and straight, the other spices so delicious, the candied fruits so caked and spotted with molten sugar as to make the coldest onlookers feel faint and subsequently bilious. Nor was it that the figs were moist and pulpy. Well, let me try to let me let me try to embrace. Let me embrace the long prose, okay? Or oh, that the French plums blushed in modest tartness from their highly decorated boxes, or oh, that everything was good to eat in its Christmas dress, but the customers were all so hurried and so eager in the hopeful promise of the day that they tumbled up against each other at the door, crashing their whiskey whisker whisker oh, wicker baskets wildly and left their purchases upon the counter and came running back to fetch them and committed hundreds of the like mistakes in the best humor possible, while the grocer and his people were so frank and fresh that the polished hearts with which they fastened their aprons behind might have been their own worn outside for general inspection. 
and for Christmas dolls to peek, peck as at it if they chose. Yeah, that, that was tough to get through. Okay, here's another paragraph. But soon the steeples called good people all to church and chapel, and away they came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes, and with their gayest faces, and what else? At the same time were emerged from scores of by street lanes and nameless turnings, innumerable people carrying their dinners to the baker shops. The sight of these poor revelers appeared to interest the spirit very much, for he stood with Scrooge beside him in a baker's doorway and taking off the covers as their bearers passed, sprinkled incense on their dinners from his torch. And it was very common kind of torch, for once or twice when there were angry words between some dinner carriers who jostled each other, he shed a few drops of water on them from it, and their good humor was restored directly, for they said it was a shame to quarrel upon Christmas Day, and so it was. God love it, so it was. In time the bell ceased, and the bakers were shut up, and there was a genial shadowing forth of all of these dinners and the progress of their cooking, and the thawed blotch of wet above each baker's oven, where the pavement smoked as if its stones were cooking too. Is there a peculiar flavor in what you sprinkle from your torch? asked Scrooge. There is my own my own flavor, yes. <laughs> Would it apply to any kind of dinner on this day, asked Scrooge? To any given, to a poor one most. Wait, to any kindly given, to a poor one most. Why the poor one most, asked, asked Scrooge. Because it needs it most. Spirit said Scrooge, after a moment's thought, I wonder you, of all beings in the many worlds about us, should desire to cramp these people's opportunities of innocent enjoyment. I, cried the spirit, you would deprive them of their means of dining every seventh day, often the only day in which they can be said to dine at all, said Scrooge, wouldn't you? I, cried the spirit, you seek to close these places on the seventh day, said Scrooge, and it comes to the same thing. I seek, claimed the spirit. Forgive me if I'm wrong. It has been done in your name, or at least that of your family, said Scrooge. There are some upon this earth of yours, returned the spirit, who lay claim to know us, who do their deeds of passion, pride, ill will, hatred, envy, bigotry and selfishness in our name who are as estranged to us <coughs> oh man boy maybe maybe he's talking to me here passion pride ill will hatred envy bigotry and selfishness in our name who are as strange to us and all our kith and kin as if they had never lived remember that and charge their doings on themselves not us Scrooge promised that he would, and they went on. Invisible as they had been, Scrooge had observed at the baker's, notwithstanding, that was in parentheses, I didn't, notwithstanding his gigantic size, he could accommodate himself to any place with ease, and that he stood beneath, it's like, I think, uh, it's right here at this point, um, I think uh, old Charlie Boy, he took so much time describing the, 
the sumptuousness of this town that he forgot that the ghost was a giant. I feel like he just like, oh, sh- oh crap. This, uh, he's a giant. Uh, what do I do? What do I do? Okay. Notwithstanding his gigantic size, he could accommodate himself to any place with ease and that he stood beneath a low roof quite as gracefully and like a supernatural cleat. <clears throat> A supernatural creature, as it was possible he could have done any in any lofty hall, and perhaps it was a pleasure the good spirit had in showing off this power of his, or else it was his own kind, generous, hearty nature, and his sympathy with all poor men had led him straight to Scrooge's clerks, for there he went and took Scrooge with him, holding ah to his robe. <sighs> And on the threshold of the door, the spirit smiled and stopped to bless Bob Cratchit's dwelling with the sprinkling of his torch. Think of that. Bob had but fifteen. What is going on, Bob? A week himself. He pocketed on Saturdays but fifteen copies of his Christian name, and yet the ghost of Christmas present blessed his four-roomed house. Then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, Cratchit's wife. Yeah, you think? Then up rose Mrs. Cratchit, comma, Cratchit's wife. You think? Oh, my. Dressed out, but poorly in a twice-turned gown, but brave in ribbons, which are cheap and make a goodly show for sixpence. And she laid the cloth, assisted by Belinda Cratchit, second of her daughters, also brave in ribbons. Well... Master Peter Cratchit plunged a fork into a saucepan of potatoes, and getting the corners of his monstrous shirt collar, Bob's private property conferred upon his son and here in honor of the day, in parentheses, into his mouth rejoiced to find himself so gallantly attired and yearned to show his linen in fashionable parks, and now two smaller Cratchits, boy and girl, came tearing in, screaming that outside the bakers they had smelt the goose and known it for their own, and basking in luxurious thoughts of sage and onions, these young Cratchits danced about the table and exalted Master Peter Cratchit to the skies, while he, not proudly, although his collars nearly choked him, blew the fire until the slow potatoes bubbling up knocked loudly at the saucepan lid to be let out and peeled. I I checked out halfway through the, that paragraph. What has ever got to your precious father, then, said Mrs. Cratchit, and your brother, Tiny Tim, and Martha weren't as late last Christmas day by a half this Christmas day by a half an hour. Here's Martha mother, said a girl appearing as she spoke. Here's Martha mother, cried two young Cratchits. Hurrah, there's such a goose, mother Martha Martha. Why bless your heart alive, my dear, how late you are. Wow, that's um that's a little uh, passive aggressive said Mrs. Cratchit, kissing her a dozen times and taking off her shawl and bonnet for her with officious zeal. We'd a deal of work up to finish we'd a deal of work to finish up last night, replied the girl, and to clear away this morning, mother. Well, never mind, so as long as you are come, said <laughs> Mrs. Cratchit. Sit ye down before the fire, my dear, and have a warm Lord bless ye. No, no, there's father coming, 
cried the two young Cratchits, who were everywhere at once. Hide, Martha, hide. So Martha hid herself in, and in came Bob, the father, with at least <clears throat> three feet, what? Three feet of comforter exclusive of the fringe <clears throat> hanging down before him. And his threadbare clothes darned up and brushed to look seasonable. And Tiny Tim upon his shoulder. Alas, for Tiny Tim, he bore a little crutch. And as his limbs supported by an iron frame. Why, where's our Martha? cried Bob Cratchit, looking around. Not coming, said Mrs. Cratchit. Not coming, said Bob. Not coming. <laughs> I don't know why I had to use that voice, said Bob, with a sudden declension in his high spirits, for he had been Tim's blood horse. Been Tim's blood horse all the way from church? For he had been Tim's blood horse all the way from church and had come home rampant. Not coming on Christmas Day? Martha didn't like to see him disappointed, as if it were only a joke. I'm actually looking for it as I... <laughs> All right, you know what? I'm going to try to get through this page, and then I'm going to take a break. <clears throat> Martha... <clears throat> Goddamn. They're only a joke. So she came out prematurely from behind the closet door and ran into his arms. While the two young Cratchits hustled Tiny Tim <clears throat> and bore him off into the wash house that he might hear the pudding singing in the copper. And how did little Tim behave? asked Mrs. Cratchit when she had rallied Bob on his credulity. Easy, patience, patience, credulity, and Bob had hugged his daughter to his heart's content. As good as gold, said Bob, and better. Somehow he gets thoughtful, sitting by himself so much that he thinks the strangest things you ever heard. He told me, I do that too, don't I? He told me coming home that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple, and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men see. Bob's voice was tremulous when he told them this, and trembled more when he said that Tiny Tim was growing strong and heavy. His active little crutch was heard upon the floor and came back, and, and back came Tiny Tim before another word was spoken, escorted by his brother and sister to his stool before the fire, and while Bob turning up his cuffs as if poor fellow they were capable of being made more shabby compounded some hot mixture in a jug with gin and lemons now i'm now i'm interested and stirred it around and around and put it on the hob simmer master peter and the two ubiquitous young cratchits went to fetch the goose with which they soon returned in a high precision procession sorry all right you know what <clears throat> let's pause right there because i've i've only gone like two pages and that's about a half an hour of your time so let's pause there and i'll do another part i was just thinking as i was reading that instead of paying attention to what i was reading i was thinking about how many uh how many writers actually that are famous now and how inclusive they actually are like you hardly get even like the most uh 
disgusting of personalities. You know, like, I mean, not just like men like Hunter S. Thompson or or Ernest Hemingway or Charles Bukowski, who I all like. They all are very inclusive. They're not racist. They're not bigoted. Maybe a little misogynistic. That's their downfall. But their misogyny does not bleed through into their work. And it's interesting how you can find, like, A Christmas Carol, they're inclusive to everybody. There's not... So far, he is a rambler, like I am. But, you know, he's trying to... He's trying to celebrate life in all its forms and accept everybody. And it's kind of funny how now people argue and when their work will be judged upon how inclusive they are to humans, right? Anyway, that's neither here nor there. That's for another podcast. Um, We will continue on part six, and then I'll try to finish this stave, and we'll call that good, all right? Adios.